0: In a city located on the shore of a great lake, there lived a young boy who looked out at that lake all the time. And over the years, as he was growing up, he developed a fascination with water, with sailing, and with boats. And he wanted to build his own boat that he could take and put out there on that lake and so he went to his dad and the two of them got together and they began to work on that boat and week after week and for a month or two they built that model boat and it looked in that little boy's eyes to be perfect and the day came that that boy went out there by the lake and he put his boat out on the water's edge and he watched it begin to float and to go down the side of the shoreline and he was thrilled to death and he went day after day and week after week, and he put his boat out there on that water's edge, and he would watch that boat sort to of go down the side of the water and watch that boat he had poured all that time and energy into. Well, one day while he was out there with his boat, watching it and admiring it and enjoying it, a sudden gusty wind came up and blew the boat out into the lake. And the wind kept blowing, and it got out there to where the boy could not reach it. And the boat kept going and kept going until it was out of sight. And the boy was devastated. He didn't know where the boat was at. So day after day, he would come down to the shoreline, and he would stand there, and he would look out over the lake, and he would strain to see if he could see his boat, but he couldn't see his boat. And he was just so upset because he could not see, could not find his boat. He'd hoped he would wash up on shore. He'd see it come back in his direction. The tide might bring it in, but no boat to be seen. One day he was walking through his city. And he passed by a store and he looked in the window. And there sat his boat in the window of that store. And he went to the proprietor of the store and he said, That's my boat. My dad and I built that boat. And it blew out into the lake, and I wondered what had ever happened to it and if I'd ever see it again, but that's my boat. And the proprietor looked at him and said, No, it is not your boat. It is my boat. I bought that boat from a fisherman, and that boat belongs to me. It is my boat. And if you want that boat, you got to pay the price like anybody else is going to have to pay the price to buy. That boat. As the little boy went back and he began to do everything he could to earn the money to buy that boat. And he worked and he worked and he saved and he saved. And the day came that he went and he presented the proprietor of that store with the money that he had saved up and worked for. And said, here's the money for the boat. The proprietor said, okay, here's your boat. And he held that boat in his arms and he was so happy. And he said these words... You are twice mine now because I made you and because I bought you. You are twice mine now because I made you and because I bought you. And that is a picture of redemption. God made us. And then on the cross in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, he bought us. And we are twice his now. We sing a lot of songs about redemption, and we talk about being redeemed. Well, what in the world does it mean to be redeemed? What is this concept of redemption all about? It's sprinkled all through the Scriptures. I mean, from Genesis to the book of Revelation, it's there over and over again. What does it mean to be redeemed and to be redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. Because to be redeemed means that we are bought by a price. We are bought at a price. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. We are bought at a price. And let's explore what it means to be redeemed. The background of the book of Ephesians is that Ephesians chapter 1, it opens the book with a song of celebration of God's saving work bringing us to himself. Verse 7 is a celebration of our redemption that we have in him and the future effects of that. The book of Ephesians answers the question, what does it mean for us to be in Christ? And what does it, that require of us? Chapters 1 through 3 are the wealth of what God has done for us. Chapters 4 and 5 are our walk with the Lord and chapters chapter 6 last week is about spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 In him that is in Christ we have redemption and how do we have this redemption? Through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. In Him, we have redemption. Where or how? Through His blood. What does that mean? The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Now, redemption in the Old Testament concept, we're going to, the New Testament concept and understanding of what it means to be redeemed builds off of the Old Testament concept. The Old Testament concept meant that redemption was achieved by payment of a ransom. Now, if you will look in your bulletins, you will see that there is an insert there. And in that insert, we've got the various aspects of redemption, they do not move sequentially. God does all of this at one time. And so as we move through this today, we're going to look at those various aspects of redemption. In the Old Testament, when one was held captive by forces that they could not overcome, they were absolutely helpless. They needed the intervention of a third party, a third party to break the bondage that they were in and to free an individual. And a person also who wanted to be set free who was a slave could only be set free if they were bought by someone else who had the capacity to do that. And then they were given a written certificate saying, hey, you are free now. So basically the Old Testament concept of redemption is that you're in a situation where you cannot free yourself. You're either a slave or you owe a large debt, but you can do nothing to take care of yourself and to set yourself free. And so therefore you had to have someone come and pay the price to set you free, and they would give you a certificate that said that you had been redeemed. You had paid the ransom. Now, there was also an interesting caveat to that. It was called the kinsman redeemer. And you see this in the book of Ruth. And the way the kinsman redeemer worked is that the person often who set you free was someone who was a near kins person. They were someone who was in your family. And they saw that you were either in slavery or that you owed a debt, that you could not help yourself. You were in a totally helpless situation. And so this near of kin to you would come and set you free by paying whatever had to be paid to set you free. And that was the idea of redemption in the Old Testament. Now, when you move to the New Testament, that concept, that idea of being set free from a situation or from a debt or from slavery that you could do absolutely nothing about, just amplifies and continues itself. In fact, Jesus is presented to us in the New Testament as our kinsman redeemer, as the one who is close to us and who acts to come and to pay the debt, to pay the ransom, to set us free. And thus, he rescues us. And in His rescuing us. He transfers us into his kingdom, into his family. So being redeemed is not just being set free so I can walk around and say, hey, I'm free. It is the idea that I am transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I am transferred from captivity of Satan to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. I am brought into his family through this act of redemption, of redeeming us. Now you notice on this insert, that redemption involves the payment of a ransom. It involves forgiveness. It involves deliverance from sin and guilt. What are we delivered from? What are we ransomed from? Sin and guilt. It involves the counting of a debt that we owe to the Lord. It involves deliverance to God as His possession. And how does it happen? It is through Christ's blood And it means that the end result is that we are in Christ. That's why Paul always in his letters ties the concept of redemption to being in Christ. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, he seems to be hung up with the preposition in. He talks about you are in Christ several times over. He says that you are in the beloved. And the idea is that you are out of sin and out of bondage. And you are in Christ, in the beloved, in the church, belonging to him. Now, redemption involves what? It involves, he says, forgiveness. The term forgiveness there means to send something away, to send something away, counseling a debt paid by somebody else and sending the debt away. So it is the idea that when God forgives us, he looks at our sin, all the places, the times that we thought, we've acted, in disobedience to God and to his law. He looks at all of that and he sends it away. He just pushes it out. He says, hey, I'm not looking at this anymore. I'm not paying attention to this anymore. I'm not focusing on your, where you sin, where you fail, where you blew it. I'm not focusing on that anymore. I am sending that away. When you go to the Lord and you ask Jesus to forgive you and to cleanse you from a sin, and we ask God, Lord, would you cleanse me forgive me of this? So let me encourage you and I to do something. When we go to the Lord and we ask for forgiveness, don't go and say, Lord, would you forgive me my sin? Make it nice, general, and nebulous. Go to the Lord and say, Spirit of God, would you show me specifically the sin that I need to repent of and I need to turn from and I need to be forgiven of and I need to be set free from? And then say, Lord, would you forgive me and cleanse me and set me free from that specific area of disobedience and wandering away from you? Now, why is it important to be specific? Because we are bound by specific sins. We're only going to be set free from specific sins. And if you and I are not specific, the devil will be specific. And let me tell you how the devil is specific. He comes and he throws the failure up in our face. And he doesn't throw it up in our face in terms of, oh, you've committed sin, so you can't get free of the sin and you've had it. The way he throws the sin in our face is this way. He throws it in our face and saying, you failed in this way. You're still in bondage to me in this way. You can't get over this particular habit, over this particular sin. That defines you. That's who you are. Satan will always get specific when he begins to throw the sin back in our face and convince us that we are defeated and have no chance of moving forward. So if we are specific in confession and repentance, it robs Satan of the opportunity to be specific in trying to hold us in bondage and weigh us down with that guilt be specific in the confession, and then be specific in receiving the forgiveness and realize that when he forgives, he sends that away. He pushes it. He takes it out of our lives so that when we feel defeated by it, we can say, Satan, flesh, Jesus set me free from that. Jesus sent it away. It's not here anymore because Jesus sent it away. He does the sinning away. We don't, but we walk in the freedom that has been accomplished by sending it out of our lives. Now, he says you've been forgiven by what? We've been forgiven of the trespasses. The word trespass there it carries this idea, walking away from God. Walking away from God. And it's interesting that Paul uses this specific word here. Lord, would you forgive me Redemption is being redeemed, being set free from all the times and places that we have walked away from God. Now, how do we walk away from God? We usually do it in one of two ways. We either do it by telling the Lord, I just don't have time for you in my life, so I'm going to walk away from you. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to read my Bible. I don't have time to worship. I don't have time for you, God. I don't have time to listen to you. I don't have time to walk in obedience to you. I don't have time for you to do internal surgery in my life. I don't have time for you, Lord. I don't have time for your call. All the different ways that we tell God, we don't have time for him. And when doing so, we are walking away from him. The other way we walk away from the Lord is we look at his law and we say, I'm not going to follow that. I'm not going to obey that. I'm going to be my own person, do my own thing in my own way. And so, Lord, I'm going to walk away from you in disobedience. So disobedience and just blowing the Lord off is usually the way we walk away from him. So he says he's redeemed us through His blood, the forgiveness of all those times that we have walked away from Him. Now, why is He forgiving us, setting us free from all those times and all those ways that we walk away from Him so that He can restore us and bring us back into relationship with Him? Notice how it says that He does that. Through His blood. In the Old Testament, In redemption, in redeeming someone, there was a price that had to be paid. In the New Testament concept, it continues. A price has to be paid. In the Roman law of that day, if someone was captured in war and was a prisoner in war, the only way they could be released was by the ransom that another Roman citizen would put up for them. And the one who was freed was obligated to his liberator until the price had been paid in full. And the concept that he's saying here is simply this. Our sin created a debt that we could not pay. Our sin created a bondage that we cannot get free from ourselves. And there was a ransom that had to be paid to secure our freedom. And Jesus on the cross, in the shedding of his blood, in the giving of his life, paid the debt. He paid the ransom. Now, we cannot pay the ransom. A lot of people try to pay it by being a good person. They go to church enough, or they pray enough, or they do enough good things. They think they can potentially pay off the debt. Have you ever heard the expression, I hope to get to heaven by the skin of my teeth? Well, if you're hoping to get to heaven by the skin of your teeth, there's no skin on your teeth, you know, our teeth. So we're we're in tough shape on that one. Jesus paid the ransom in full on the cross by His blood, the giving of His life. And so what I lean into is what Christ has already done for me and for you in the giving of His life on the cross. He liberates us, and we owe everything to our liberator. Now, we cannot pay Him off. He paid the debt that we will never be able to pay, which means that we are in bondage to our liberator. Folks, there's not a better place to be than in bondage to Jesus because where freedom begins is in his presence. Where release is experienced is in his presence. Where the depths of the love of God are encountered are in his presence. So we are forever in debt to Jesus. One of the things I love about the book of Revelation is if when you go to the book of Revelation, particularly as you get over towards the 18th chapter, they're having all these big worship services. By the way, that is a picture of what heaven is going to be like. People ask me sometimes, what's heaven going to be like? I can't give you any, a lot of details, but one thing I can tell you about heaven, we're going to worship in heaven. We are going to worship in heaven. Why are they worshiping chapter after chapter with the intensity that they're worshiping with? It's because they're recognizing that Jesus paid the debt. That's why he's referred to as the lamb that was slain. Because through eternity, every time we look at Jesus and we will see the nail scars in his hands and in his feet. And where they... Crown of thorns was in his brow, and we look upon him, healed, resurrected, but still those scars reminding us of the cross, we cannot help but break out in spontaneous worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, you paid the debt, Jesus. I was helpless. I could not pay the debt, but you redeemed me, and that redemption means that you took me from the powers of darkness and the captivity of sin and all that it was raging in my life, and you brought me to yourself, and you claimed me for your own. And I am here in your presence today, and I will be in your presence forever because you paid the debt. And that's the reason I have to worship you, Jesus. Now, notice it says that he did that according to the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace. His grace is more than up to the task that was put before him when he came to redeem us. The riches of his grace. It's like going out to buy a house and the house cost a ton of money, but you got more than that ton of money in the bank. His riches are more than adequate to pay for that. The riches of His grace. What is the grace of God? I mean, we sing about amazing grace and all that, but what is the grace of God? It's God's power in action to save us. God's grace is His power in action to save us. The reason on this diagram that I put grace at the top is that everything that happens in this diagram is is the result, is the expression of the power of God, the grace of God in action to save us. God's grace dependent entirely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We are helpless, again, in the face of our sin, guilt, punishment, power, and the activity of Satan, but His grace, more than adequate, more than powerful, to save us. That brings us to the Lord's Supper. In a few moments, you will have that wafer that you will take. And you will see in it and be reminded of it, when you look at it, of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how His body was broken for you and given for you in His act of redeeming us. Then you will have the juice. And the juice is going to remind you of His blood. Poured out for you, shed for you, given for us, the price of our redemption, the price of him redeeming us, of claiming us to himself, is his blood. But realize as you take that, that that is also the price that he says you are worth to him. You are worth his body and you are worth his blood. Not because you and I earned it. Not because we asked for it. But because that's how he views us. And he says to us, like that little boy said of his boat, Twice I have claimed you. I made you. I created you. And then I bought you. Twice. Over. You have belonged to me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.